Section 8 of The Life of Richard Nash, Esquire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. The Life of Richard Nash, Esquire, Late Master of Ceremonies at Bath, by Oliver Goldsmith, edited by Peter Cunningham. Thus resolved, she sat down at her dining-room window, and with cool intrepidity wrote the following lines on one of the panes of the window. O death, thou pleasing end of human woe, thou cure for life, thou greatest good below, still mayst thou fly the coward and the slave, and thy soft slumbers only bless the brave. She then went into company with the most cheerful serenity, talked of indifferent subjects till supper, which she ordered to be got ready in a little library belonging to the family. There she spent the remaining hours preceding bedtime in dandling two of Mr. Wood's children on her knees. In retiring from thence to her chamber, she went into the nursery to take her leave of another child, as it lay sleeping in the cradle. Struck with the innocence of the little babe's looks and the consciousness of her meditated guilt, she could not avoid bursting into tears and hugging it in her arms. She then bid her old servant a good night, for the first time she had ever done so, and went to bed as usual. It is probable she soon quitted her bed, and was seized with an alternation of passions before she yielded to the impulse of despair. She dressed herself in clean linen and white garments of every kind, like a bridemaid, her gown was pinned over her breast, just as a nurse pins the swaddling clothes of an infant. A pink silk girdle was the instrument with which she resolved to terminate her misery, and this was lengthened by another made of gold thread. The end of the former was tied with a noose, and the latter with three knots at a small distance from one another. Thus prepared she sat down again and read, for she left the book open at that place, in the story of Olympia, in the Orlando Furioso of Ariosto, where, by the perfidy and ingratitude of her bosom friend, she was ruined and left to the mercy of an unpitying world. This fatal event gave her fresh spirits to go through her tragical purpose. So, standing upon a stool, and flinging the girdle, which was tied round her neck, over a closet door that opened into her chamber, she remained suspended. Her weight, however, broke the girdle, and the poor despairer fell on the floor with such violence that her fall awakened a workman that lay in the house about half an hour after two o'clock. Recovering herself, she began to walk about the room, as her usual custom was when she wanted sleep, and the workman, imagining it to be only some ordinary accident, again went to sleep. She once more, therefore, had recourse to a stronger girdle made of silver thread, and this kept her suspended till she died. Her old maid continued in the morning to wait as usual for the ringing of the bell, and protracted her patience hour after hour till two o'clock in the afternoon, when the workman at length, entering the room through the window, found their unfortunate mistress still hanging and quite cold. The coroner's jury being impanelled, brought in their verdict lunacy, and her corpse was next night decently buried in her father's grave, 
at the charge of a female companion with whom she had for many years an inseparable intimacy. Thus ended a female wit, a toast and a gamester, loved, admired, and forsaken, formed for the delight of society, fallen by imprudence into an object of pity. Hundreds in high life lamented her fate, and wished, when too late, to redress her injuries. They who once had helped to impair her fortune, now regretted that they had assisted in so mean a pursuit. The little effects she had left behind were bought up with the greatest avidity by those who desired to preserve some token of a companion that once had given them such delight. The remembrance of every virtue she was possessed of was now improved by pity. Her former follies were few, but the last swelled them to a large amount, and she remains the strongest instance to posterity that want of prudence alone almost cancels every other virtue. In all this unfortunate lady's affairs, Mr. Nash took a peculiar concern. He directed her when they played, advised her when she deviated from the rules of caution, and performed the last offices of friendship after her decease, by raising the auction of her little effects. But he was not only the assistant and the friend of the fair sex, he was also their defender. He secured their persons from insult, and their reputations from scandal. Nothing offended him more than a young fellow's pretending to receive favours from ladies he probably never saw. Nothing pleased him so much as seeing such a piece of deliberate mischief punished. Nash and one of his friends, being newly arrived at Tunbridge from Bath, were one day on the walks, and seeing a young fellow of fortune, with whom they had some slight acquaintance, joined him. After the usual chat and news of the day was over, Mr. Nash asked him how long he had been at the Wells, and what company was there. The other replied he had been at Tunbridge a month, but as for company he could find as good at a Tyburn ball. Not a soul was to be seen, except a parcel of gamesters and strumpets, who would grant the last favour for a single stake at the Faro Bank. "'Look you there,' continued he, "'that goddess of midnight so fine at t'other end of the walks, "'by Jove, she was mine this morning for half a guinea. "'And she there, who brings up the rear with powdered hair and dirty ruffles, "'she's pretty enough, but cheap, perfectly cheap. "'Why, my boys, to my own knowledge you may have her for a crown "'and a dish of chocolate into the bargain. "'Last Wednesday night we were happy.' "'Hold there, sir,' cried the gentleman, as for your having the first lady, it is possible it may be true, and I intend to ask her about it, for she is my sister. But as for your being happy with the other last Wednesday, I am sure you are a lying rascal. She is my wife, and we came here but last night. The buck vainly asked pardon. The gentleman was going to give him proper chastisement, when Mr. Nash interposed in his behalf, and obtained his pardon upon condition that he quitted Tunbridge immediately. But Mr. Nash not only took care during his administration to protect the ladies from the insults of our sex, but to guard them from the slanders of each other. 
he in the first place prevented any animosities that might arise from place and precedence by being previously acquainted with the rank and quality of almost every family in the british dominions he endeavoured to render scandal odious by marking it as the result of envy and folly united not even solon could have enacted a wiser law in such a society as bath the gay the heedless and the idle who mostly compose the group of water-drinkers seldom are at the pains of talking upon universal topics which require comprehensive thought or abstract reasoning the adventures of the little circle of their own acquaintance or of some names of quality and fashion make up their whole conversation but it is too likely that when we mention those we wish to depress them in order to render ourselves more conspicuous scandal must therefore have fixed her throne at bath preferable to any other part of the kingdom however though these endeavours could not totally suppress this custom among the fair yet they gained him the friendship of several ladies of distinction who had smarted pretty severely under the lash of censure among this number was the old duchess of marlborough who conceived a particular friendship for him and which continued during her life she frequently consulted him in several concerns of a private nature her letting leases building bridges or forming canals were often carried on under his guidance but she advised with him particularly in purchasing liveries for the footmen a business to which she thought his genius best adapted as anything relative to her may please the curiosity of such as delight in the anecdotes and letters of the great, however dull and insipid, I shall beg leave to present them with one or two of her epistles, collected at a venture from several others to the same purpose. To Mr. Nash at the Bath, Blenheim, September 18, 1724. Mr. Jennings will give you an account how little time I have in my power and that will make my excuse for not thanking you sooner for the favour of your letter, and for the trouble you have given yourself in bespeaking the cloth, which I am sure will be good, since you have undertaken to order it. Pray ask Mrs. Jennings concerning the cascade, which will satisfy all doubts in that matter. She saw it play, which it will do in great beauty, for at least six hours together, and it runs enough to cover all the stones constantly and is a hundred feet broad, which I am told is a much greater breadth than any cascade is in England. And this will be yet better than it is when it is quite finished. This water is a great addition to this place, and the lake being thirty acres, out of which the cascade comes, and falls into the canal that goes through the bridge, it makes that look as if it was necessary, which before seemed so otherwise. I am your most humble servant, S. Marlborough. To Mr. Nash at the Bath. Marlborough House, May 17, 1735. Sir, I have received the favour of yours of the 10th of May, with that from Mr. Harvey, and by last post I received a letter from Mr. Overton, a sort of bailiff and a surveyor, whom I have employed a great while upon my estates in Wiltshire. He is a very active and a very useful man of his sort, he writes to me that mr harvey has been with him and brought him a paper which i sent you he says that finding he was a man that was desirous to serve me he had assisted him all he could by informations which he has given and that he should continue to assist him 
I have writ to him that he did mighty well. There is likewise a considerable tenant of my Lord Bruce's, his name is Cannons, who has promised me his assistance towards recommending tenants for these farms, and if Mr. Harvey happens to know such a man, he may put him in mind of it. I am sure you will do me all the good you can, and I hope you are sure that I shall always be sensible of the obligations I have to you, and ever be your most thankful and obliged humble servant, S. Marlborough. Mr. Harvey may conclude to take any prices that were given you in the paper, but as I know that we have been scandalously cheated, if he finds that anything can be let better than it has been let, I do not doubt but he will do it. The Duchess of Marlborough seems to have been not a much better writer than Mr. Nash, but she was worth many hundred thousand pounds, and that might console her. It may give splenetic philosophy, however, some scope for meditation, when it considers what a parcel of stupid trifles the world is ready to admire. Whatever might have been Mr. Nash's other excellences, there was one in which few exceeded him. I mean his extensive humanity. None felt pity more strongly, and none made greater efforts to relieve distress. If I were to name any reigning and fashionable virtue in the present age, I think it should be charity. The numberless benefactions privately given, the various public solicitations for charity, and of the success they meet with, serve to prove that though we may fall short of our ancestors in other respects, yet in this instance we greatly excel them. I know not whether it may not be spreading the influence of Mr. Nash too widely to say that he was one of the principal causes of introducing this noble emulation among the rich. But certain it is, no private man ever relieved the distresses of so many as he did. End of section 8